The following message was recorded at Faith Fellowship St. Pete in St. Petersburg, Florida. More information about Faith Fellowship can be found at faithfellowshipstpete.org. Good morning. It's good to see you guys. So uh, we are continuing on in the Sermon on the Mount. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Matthew chapter 7. And uh, what we see in, uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, there's a, a turning point here in Matthew 7. So uh, Matthew 5, Jesus is talking a lot about uh, the, the kingdom of God, and he, he talks about the Beatitudes. You know, what does it look like to have a life that is, is beautiful, the attitudes that are to mark us, being poor in spirit, mourning, uh, being hungry and thirsty uh, for righteousness. And, uh, and so he goes on and just kind of talks and unpacks the kingdom of God and really looks at the, the Ten Commandments, you know, anger, lust, divorce, you know, like adultery, all these things. And he starts talking about how does his, his kingdom, how does Jesus' kingdom interact with what we see in the Old Testament? How does it clarify and how does it reinforce but yet also pave a, a new understanding? And then in chapter 6, um, Jesus turns and he starts talking about um, what does an inward life of righteousness look like? Right, you know, looks at our giving, our fasting, our prayer life, and he says, "What does it look like for us to live a life that's marked unto the Lord and not to please man?" Right? I mean, it, what does it look like to be uh, to live for an audience of one rather than an audience of many? And then he goes and starts talking about that we can't serve two masters, right? So you have pleasing people on this one hand and, and, and then serving money on this. And he says, listen, it's neither. And, and we just unpacked uh, last week about the results. What happens when you live a life that is marked by pursuing the pleasure of people, getting people to like you, and when you're storing up treasure for this earth? And he says, what's going to happen is that your life is going to be marked by anxiety. You're going to constantly be worrying because you can't control things. Right, and it, and it, people's opinions of you are going to always be fluctuating. And guess what? Your treasure on earth is very temporal, and it's going to vanish at times, and it's going to diminish. Uh, there are going to be people that can steal, that can break in and take it. It's going to, you know, decay, moth and rust. Uh, and so he says it's going to breed anxiety. He talks about that the antidote to that is seeking first the kingdom of God. That when we seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, it dispels anxiety and it brings in peace. That when we have peace with God, we can have the peace from God. And so here in chapter 7, he kind of opens up a, a, a new uh, direction uh, in the Sermon on the Mount. And he's going to start talking about our relationships and, and how do we engage in, in our relationships. And he, he says in here, and he's talking about brothers. And so we're going to be talking about um, judging. What does it mean for us to, uh, to judge or not to judge? And so that's really the title of the message today is, is to judge or not to judge. That is the question, right? So uh, if you would look at uh, Matthew chapter 7, and we're going to read verses 1 through 6. Verse 1, he says, Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn and attack you. This is God's word. So the big idea that's going to guide our time is this. It's that our condemning judgments blind us and return upon us. Our condemning judgments, they blind us and they will return upon us. That... We must wrestle with our own brokenness. We must wrestle with our own brokenness before we step in to help another. All right? And so I think that that's what this, if we were to summarize what this passage teaches us, I think that this passage teaches this. Our condemning judgments, they blind us, they enable, they, they hinder us from seeing clearly our own lives and others' lives, and they return upon us, and that we have to first wrestle with our own brokenness before we can help anybody else. 
And so uh, the outline for us, how we're going to kind of talk about that, uh, is that in verses 1 through 4, we have Jesus condemning judgment, right? That the judgment is condemned in verses 1 through 4. Verse 5 is where we talk about Jesus says that we are to have introspection, confession, and, uh, and love. And then in verse 6, uh, the, the opposite is that we see judgment is required. Right, and so that's where the whole title is: judge to judge or not to judge, is because you see on both ends of the spectrum, it seems like Jesus is contradicting. You know, he says, "Judge not," and then in verse six, he calls people dogs and pigs, and he's clearly making a judgment. So we're like, "What in the world is Jesus doing here?" And so we're gonna we're gonna dig into that. So first, let's uh, let's look at the con- uh, condemnation of judgment in verse uh, verse one. He says, "Judge not, lest you be judged." How is this verse often used? Right? I don't know about you, but I mean, even looking at any kind of social media or even talking with anybody, most of the time, this is used in a way to say, hey, don't look at me, don't judge me, and, uh, and we use it as a way to protect ourselves from others. Right? We feel someone judging us, and we say, hey, you're not supposed to judge, don't judge me. And uh, there's a, a book called Unchristian. And uh, it was written quite a while ago, but it, it, it looked at 20-somethings and kind of their perspective on Christianity. And uh, newsflash, the culture doesn't really accept Christianity, and we're moving more towards that. And so one of the major things that the study found is that most uh, non-Christians think that Christians are judgmental. Right? They, they think that they're judgmental, that they're not accepting, um, and that oftentimes they would use this as that they would say, hey, you're, you're judging me, but Jesus says not to judge now, the interesting thing about this verse, though, is that this verse is far more concerned about us as individuals not judging than about using it as a defense for people judging us. You hear that? Jesus is more concerned with us, not, with us withholding judgment rather than us using this as a protection from other people judging us. Right? Paul says, Paul's not really concerned with who judges him. He's like, listen, who, people can judge me. I don't care. Who, what, why, do I, why am I concerned about them judging me? He says, I'm more concerned about my judgments. And so that's, as, as a church, we need to be far more concerned with our bent to judge others than using this as a defense for other people judging us. Because ultimately, right, I mean, it goes back to why are we pleasing others? Why are we caring so much about other people judging us? And Jesus is Jesus saying, listen, don't use this as a protection from other people judging you. Let them be, you know, they're servants of the Lord or or they're going to be held accountable to God. You know, whether they're following him or whether they're not a believer, let let God be the one to deal with them. So we see it used often in a way that's defensive and in a way that sometimes is even used to justify sinful behavior, right? You, You have this often, is it, listen, I'm, I'm, you know, doing something I know I ought to do, but you don't judge me. You don't call me out on it. Who are you to say anything? You know, you, you're broken too. Nobody's perfect. And, and Jesus is not here saying that we are not to make judgments, right? And it gets down to what does the word judge mean, right? I mean, clearly Jesus doesn't mean we are to make judgments because you can't read the Bible or read the Sermon on the Mount without hearing Jesus make judgments. I mean, see, Jesus calls the Pharisees whitewashed tombs, sons of Satan. Um, he says that they're blind guides. And so Jesus, like, makes judgments, you know? And so we can't read this as saying that we are never to, to make judgments. We're never to have discernment, right? And so the question is, what does judge mean? Right? The word is, is krino in Greek, and it, and it can mean two different things. It can mean either to exercise a proper discernment for something, or it can mean a judgment on people or a condemnation of people. All right? And we see this in the, in the parallel passage in Luke, the Sermon on the Plain, Luke 6.37. He says, judge not and, you will be not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned forgiven, you'll be forgiven. And so what's really important to realize in this first verse, Jesus is talking about the kind of judgment that sits in condemnation over another person, over a situation, not a discerning kind of judgment. And how do we, how do we tell the difference? Right? I mean, isn't, that's, that's our question, right? How do we tell the difference when we are standing in judgment and condemnation versus how are we standing and judging and discerning? And we mentioned it in Bible study, but I think the key is the difference between motive and behavior, 
right, is that we can see what's going on on the outside, but we have no idea what's going on on the inside. God is the one that sees the motives of the heart. And when the moment when we start, when we step into, well, I see this, and therefore, this is their motive. This is what they're going to. And, and oftentimes, I think that we're crossing the boundaries into stepping into a place where we are playing the role of God that says that we know their heart, we know exactly what they're doing and why they're doing it. And we need to step back, and we need to take a moment where we say, man, we don't know. We need to acknowledge our limitations and say, God knows, and so I'm going to give the benefit of the doubt. I'm going to extend grace. Right? I mean, the golden rule, do unto others as you want them to do unto you. I mean, we want others to give us the benefit of the doubt. We want other people to extend us grace. And so we ought to be a people that do that. So, Verse 2, kind of going on, he says, For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you used, it will be measured to you. So the question is, why are we not to judge? Why, why shouldn't we judge? Well, Greg Boyd captures the problem of judging really well. He says, you can't love and judge at the same time. Because it's impossible to ascribe unsurpassable worth to others when you're using others to ascribe worth to yourself. You see, one of the big reasons why we judge often is because we want to compare ourselves to others. And we feel better, right? I mean, when you see someone else messing up, you feel a little bit better about yourself because you're like, well, maybe I'm not messing up in that way. Right? I mean, just as everybody laughs when that person falls, you're like, I didn't fall, but they did. And so you kind of amuse yourself at it. A lot of us do that, whether it's morally or spiritually, is that when someone else falls or when we can see or perceive faults in other people, it makes us feel like we've got our act together. Right? I've, got, I've got my life together, man. At least I'm not you know, doing what they're doing. You know, I mean, this is the same attitude that Jesus condemns when he's talking about the Pharisee and this, uh, this tax collector. Both of them go up to pray. Both of them go up to pray. And the Pharisee starts off, he says, God, thank you that I'm not like other men. Thank you that I'm not like this tax collector. I give of all that I have, and I come and I pray consistently. Right? And, the, and the tax collector comes up and he says, God, forgive me. I'm an unworthy sinner. I'm not even worth being near you in your presence. All right? and, and the Pharisee is, is judging. Why? In order that he would, feel, uh, he would feel validated, that he would feel justified in his existence. Why do I know I'm a good person. Why? Because I am better than this person and this person and this person. And it's, an, it's impossible to love people when you're in that mindset. It's impossible. C.S. Lewis talks about that. If, I'm, if you're so concerned with looking down upon others, then you'll never be able to look up. And if, so if you're looking down at other people and always examining their problems, you're never able to look up. And, and who's always above you? And that's God. God is always above you, and he's always going to be above you. And you're never going to see him nor encounter him if your eyes are constantly fixed by putting people below you and by making them worse than you are. This quote goes on. It says, it says, Judgment causes us to see the other person not as person, but as a thing as less human and therefore less valuable. And once we do that to a person or a group of people, it opens the door to all kinds of terrible evil, segregation, injustice, abuse, even genocide. Jesus is warning us about, the, about excluding anyone or seeing ourselves or our group as inherently better than any other. We may disagree and discern another person or group to be wrong, but when that discernment causes us to value another person or group less, then we've crossed the line into judgment, condemnation, and exclusion. A real practical example of this, um, I am a big movie guy, uh, and so if you're here any length of time, you know I love movies. Uh, anybody watch The Greatest Showman? All right? So a handful of you guys, yeah, I was like, Cheryl, I know, has seen this like four times. <laughs> so <laughs> she's like, thank you, you're using this quote. Uh, so the, uh, Emily, uh, my wife, loves musicals, and so for our date night, we went to The Greatest Showman, and Theo was a champ, he did great. Um, and so we went and, uh, and saw it, and the movie is about P.T. Barnum and, uh, and the circus, right? And it's really a story of, of feeling judged, and moving from judgment into a place of acceptance and grace and love. Because P.T. Barnum, he, he was a, a son of a tailor. You know, he was poor, he came from nothing, didn't feel like he was anyone, felt like he constantly had to prove himself. 
And so he was constantly working. It was never enough. And finally, when his break, he took a loan, was able to kind of deceive the bank and took a loan out for himself and opened up this wax museum, which ended up turning into the circus. And the way it turned into circus is he got all these eclectic different kinds of people, people that were tall, people that were large, people that, you know, women that could grow beards, all these just people that, that were looked on as outcasts. They had no home. They had no place. They were always judged as less than worthy, as less than valuable. And they came and they were able to find a home because they were accepted, because someone cared for them, had a purpose greater than themselves. And the, the, the funny thing is that he's gathering all these people together, but P.T. Barnum himself still felt judged. Even though he had married his wife and he had achieved great success and great fame, he still never could believe or never feel accepted. He always felt like he was the outsider, always judged as less than, than the top peer, than, the, than the, the elites in the social classes. And so you see, he goes to all these massive extremes he risks his family, he risks his whole business in order that he could be accepted. And it's amazing that once everything crashes and burns, once everything you know humbles him, he comes back and, and realizes that what he was really looking for was there, that he hadn't understood it, he hadn't received it, he hadn't accepted it. And, and that's such the truth for us is that I, I think the movie does a great job of showing um, what judging does and how it destroys. When you see people that are different than you and you judge them as less than worthy of value, of time, of attention, of relationship, right? And it's, it can be subtle, right? It can be in subtle ways. Well, they're just different than me, so I don't know if I'll give a relationship or I'll extend time or if I'll invest here. And he says it starts in these things and it grows into judgment. We deem people less worthy then. And so Jesus, Jesus goes on and he, he talks about why are we not to be judged? Well, why are we not to judge? Well, one, because it, it inhibits love. We can't love if we judge. And, and he, he says we, can't, we shouldn't judge because if we judge, we are going to be judged. Right? Judgment will return upon us. Right? He says, for the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. Now the question is, who is he talking about? Who is, who is judging us? How is that judgment going to return upon us? I think there's two things. I think that the primary one is, is God, but I think one that I want to spend a little bit of time is, is talking about is that I think that judgment will return upon us by others. So Galatians 6, 7 through 8 says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. When you sow judgment and condemnation in your relationships and the lives around you, you will begin to see that it will return upon you. Is that it will, you will find yourself around people that are going to be constantly looking at ways to diminish you in order to put themselves above you. And this can, I've seen this. I've seen this in marriages. I've seen this in families. When you have someone that their worth is found in belittling other people, is that it just extends because it, you create what's on the inside of you, right? We say this a lot, love people, love people, and hurt people, hurt people. Those that are constantly trying to validate their existence and their value and worth by judging others are going to create that kind of an environment where they're in. They're going to they're gonna see that people are going to start judging them also in return. The main thing, though, that Jesus talks about is that we're going to be judged by God. Those with the measure you use, it will be measured back unto you. But how does this work? How is it that we're going to be judged by God if we're believers, right? I mean, like, if, if you know, I mean, how is he he's saying that you're going to be judged by God? Well, I think that what Jesus is talking here, we get to see this. He says that you know a tree by its fruit. You know a tree by its fruit. Good tree produces good fruit. A bad tree produces bad fruit. And so he says, if you, if the, the constant state of your life is in one of judgment and of condemnation of other people, then the question is, have you really accepted the grace of God? Right? And this doesn't mean that we don't struggle. This doesn't mean as Christians that we don't struggle with judgment, that we don't fight it, that, God, that we don't have to continue to bring ourselves to the grace of God and remind ourselves that he, though could have judged us and could have condemned us, instead gave us grace and mercy and love. That that humbles us. It brings us back. Though we fight it, listen, if that's the state of your life, if you're constantly in a mode of condemnation, you're constantly in a mode of looking down on other people, then I think you have to ask the question, have you accepted the grace of God? Because the grace of God changes the core of who we are. 
right? It, it, it makes us a people that can no longer stand and look upon others with condemnation, but instead we look at them with mercy. And you see this, that Jesus tell the parable in Matthew 18 about forgiveness, and I think it really hits this point. There's a servant owed a large debt to his master, you know, a, a, an insurmountable debt, and he's unable to pay it. And his master, the king, could easily call his debt in, and he would stand uh, several lifetimes of enslavement. But instead, he forgives him. Instead, he grants him mercy. Have you ever owed that? I mean, just think about it. I mean, something we hear the story, and we take ourselves out of it. Have you ever been a massive amount of debt? You ever felt the weight of that? I can't stand it. I hate it. You know, even our mortgage drives me crazy. Like, I'm like, I want to pay it off. You know, but like, so, but have you ever been in a massive amount of debt and felt the weight of that? Whether it's financial, maybe it's relational, maybe it's that you've wronged someone and you know that you, that they've given you, you're in their debt. You just feel the weight of that. And imagine the reprieve that happens when that's taken off. Then that, that debt that you owed is now paid for and is gone. And so it's, his master pays that debt. He takes it off the burden. But he doesn't really believe it. Why? Because he turns around and he has a servant that owes him probably around six months wages, a, a large sum. But he refuses to grant mercy to him. And instead, he has him thrown in, in, in prison. Now that king turns around and says, you wicked servant. And he turns and throws him in, in prison. Why? It's because he never really understood or believed that he was forgiven. He, right? he still was living that he was in debt and had to pay it back. And so, too, I, I think it shows that he was never really a Christian. And so, too, when we are constantly in this mode of, of condemnation, it shows if, have we really received the grace of God? If we re- have received the grace of God, then we can no longer stand in condemnation or judgment over another. Instead, we remember, we remember the cross. For me, it, it's a point of great humility when you think about your own brokenness, your own sin, and what it took for you to be saved. That Jesus would do such a thing. Romans 3, verses 1 through 3, it says, Therefore you have no excuse, O man of God. Every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Paul's talking here, and he's saying to those that were Pharisees, those that were very religious and would stand in condemnation, he says, you think that you're going to escape. You'll fall also along the judgment of God if you do not trust in his grace, if you do not come to him by faith. James four eleven through 12, he says, Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? One of the things he says here is, how is it that our condemnation or our judgment is often expressed? It's through our speech. He says, be very careful. Who is it that you slander? Who is it that you gossip about? All right, and, and remember, gossiping, what is gossip? What is slander? It's, it's saying bad things about people with a bad motive behind their back. Right? Saying bad things about people behind, with a bad motive behind their back. And who is it that we do this to? Because this is often one of the greatest ways in which we stand in condemnation over others is that we use our words to break and to tear them down rather than using our words to bring life and encouragement. All right? and, and I think that that's so important that we... We look on the other side of this, right? Instead of, because sometimes, Jesus, this is a negative purpose and do not judge. What's the opposite of it? What's Jesus instructing us to do, right? He's instructing us to love. He's instructing us to encourage. He's instructing us to admonish, to build up. And so instead of just saying, hey, listen, I'm going to not judge others and I've checked it off. Why don't we think about how is it that God would call you to bring encouragement and life to the people around you? And I mean, there's nothing like that. And that's what the Lord does to us is that sometimes we, you need to hear God speak encouragement and life over you rather than you're not doing enough. You're not meeting the bar. And God loves you and he wants to drag you out of some of the condemnation that you so feel often that you can wrap yourself in and say, I, I love you. I'm with you. I will journey with you. Understand that I have taken the worst of what you will face. 
So we, we must be careful in how we speak and letting our words be one of encouragement, ones of love. The second thing that, that he tells us why we're not to judge is he says we're not to judge because we're in no position to see clearly to judge. Verses 3 through 4, he says, Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, Let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? Now, Jesus gives us, I mean, it's a humorous example if you think about it. I mean, you've got a two-by-four sticking out of your eye, right? I mean, if you imagine that, your two-by-four is knocking everybody else down, right? I mean, they're ducking, you know, I mean, just trying to get out of the way. Because every time you look at somebody, you know, you ain't got nothing but evil things to say. You're just constantly condemning people everywhere you look. And he says, it's, it's ironic, isn't it? You've got a log in your eye. You're not able to even understand or see your own log, but yet you find this little tiny speck in somebody else's eye. And you're like, hey, bro, let me help you out. And they're ducking around, trying to like, trying to miss the log. And you're like, hold it, just, if you would just be still, I'll grab that speck. And all the while you're trying to dodge this huge log that's about to take your head off. You know what I mean, right? It's the irony behind this whole illustration. And I think we see this irony in, in a story. 1 Samuel 12 you know, King David has, uh, he stayed home from war. He ought to have been out battling with his army. And say so he stays home and he sees Bathsheba bathing on a rooftop and he lusts over her. Finds out that she's Uriah's wife, doesn't care. Calls her over and sleeps with her. Commits adultery. Finds out that she's pregnant and to cover up his sin, he calls Uriah back. But Uriah is honorable. He refuses to sleep with his wife in that time period. Instead, sleeps outside the king outside the king's gate, and, and he won't go to be with his wife because he's an honorable man. So David says, listen, man, I can't kill this guy, you know, so I, I'm going to have to send him back into the battle. You know, I can't, I can't fake the whole, uh, the whole adultery thing. I can't have him sleep with his wife, so I'm going to have to kill him. And he sends him back to the army, and he gives him the message of his own death, telling the, the commander to draw back and leave Uriah helpless. And so he kills Uriah, and he thinks, I'm the king. Nobody's going to catch me. I've got power. I've got influence. i got prestige. Nobody knows. What's anybody going to say anyways? Prophet David, or Prophet Nathan. And what a bold prophet. And what a bold man. Sometimes God's going to call us to be bold, and it's not going to be easy. Because think about this. He's stepping in the king's chamber, and the king could say, off with your head. I mean, right? The king could just say, hey, that's it. You're going to die. But he, he steps in, trusting that God's the ultimate one who's in command. He's sovereign. He is the judge that I'm going to seek to please, not the king. And so Nathan steps into this, and he gives David this, this parable, this illustration. He says, David, there was a man, there's a poor and a rich man. And this, this rich man, he had many lambs, he was very wealthy, and, uh, and he had guests over. But this poor man, this poor man had this one lamb, this one, this one baby lamb, and he cared for it. It was like a daughter to him. He raised it up, he milked it, he carried it in his arms. I mean, it grew up with his family very, it was very near and very dear to him. But this rich man, he didn't want to sacrifice one of his own goats. He didn't want to take one of his own flock. But instead, he went over to the poor man, and he took his, and he killed it. And then he said, David, what do you think should be done to that man? He says, take no pity on him. Take no pity on that man. Right? You should go, and you shall enforce it fourfold against him. Show no mercy. Right? Nathan's thinking, good thing you said that. Because, <laughs> David, you're the man. You're the man. Right? And, and it's, it's because David had this two-by-four blinding him, couldn't see, but yet he's going to focus on a lamb. Right? I mean, like, he's going to blow up this guy because he took a lamb, but yet he murdered a man and slept with his wife. And this is what sin does in our life. This is what judgment will do, is judgment will blind us. It will enable, it will hinder us from seeing who we really are and what's going on in our life. It will deceive us. And we will, like Jesus says, we will be blind guides leading the blind. But there's good news. There's good news because David repented. Right, and, and this is what we this is what we see in verse five, right? He says, You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. You hypocrite, you actor, you fake. That's what the hypocrite was, right? It was someone who put a mask on and, and played a different part, played something different than who they really were, than what was really going on. And he says, you hypocrite. And what happened? David was acting. He was playing a part, acting as if he was fine, he was righteous, he was good. 
And finally his act was revealed. It was disclosed to him. And he took off his mask. And he was bare before the Lord. And he says, first you must take out your own, first take out your log. And so what does it look like for us? What does it look like for us to take out the log from our own eye? Because all of us, all of us have logs, right? All of us have bent to lean towards certain sin that hinder us from actually following or seeing the Lord. And so I think that it first starts with introspection, looking inside and, and actually being still. So introspection, I think, looks like two things. One, I think that it requires stillness. We live in a society where we're constantly going, where we have to fight for time to be still, and where boredom is seen as the greatest evil. Right, if we have ten minutes and we're bored, life is going to fall apart. Right, and so we see we see this, and so fight for stillness because you're never going to hear the convicting voice of God in your life unless you're still. Instead, you're going to constantly be filling it with other voices, and so you'll never you're never going to really be convicted. You're never going to see your own sin. So you have to fight for stillness. The second thing that you need to do in introspection is that you need to have friends, real friends. You need to have believers in your life that know you, that love you. Friends like Nathan. Friends that are bold enough to step into your life, they're going to call you out, but that don't do it in a way as if they're acting like they're better. Right? Nathan didn't come. Nathan didn't come to condemn David. Nathan loved David. He came to him because he cared for him, because he wanted his restoration. And so you and I, we need friends like that. If we constantly just surround ourselves with friends that just pat us on the back and they never tell us the truth, they never actually deal with the rough stuff in our life. We don't have real friends. And we're never going to take the log out of our own eye. And we're going to constantly be knocking the people down around us because we're never going to move on from that struggle that we have. And, and let me just say this. You need to take the initiative. Rather than saying, man, I just wish some friends would pop in. Where are they going to come? You need to take the initiative and you need to open up your life and invite people in. Right? I mean, this is what we do with eating together, is that we, you know, with hospitality, we invite people into our lives. And we say, we say, listen, and I, I have a couple of people in my life, and we need to have, you can't do this for everybody, but you need to have a couple of people in your life that say, listen, like, I trust you, and if you see something in my life, I, I give you free reign. I want you to speak up. I want you to help me to fight sin in my life, because I know that you're not coming to condemn me. You're not coming here to put me down. You're coming here for my restoration and for my love, and, and to love me and to help me. And so, have you done that? Do you have people in your life where you've actually opened up and you've given them permission to speak into your life? You said, please come. I, I, I don't want to have a log in my I don't want to walk around and be hindered. I want to be free. I want to see clearly. And so, please, speak into my life. Help me. So there, we need to have introspection. The second thing is that we need to have confession. And I can't, we can't beat this drum enough, is that we have to confess our sins to the Lord. We have to acknowledge with God that what we've done is wrong and evil. We, we can't justify it, right? And that's what we do so often. It's not a big deal. Listen, and we do this because we judge other people. Like, God, it's not a big deal. I mean, look at them. Like, I'm not that bad. It's okay. And so we rationalize and we justify our sin, our laziness, our, our, our desire to be constantly comforted by entertainment, our inability to be disciplined, right? We, we, we rationalize all of these things because we find people that are worse. And we say, yeah, they're, they're worse than I am, so I'm doing pretty good. And I pat myself on the back. And so we never actually stop and agree with God and say, God, what this is, is it's sin? It's that I don't believe something about you. I don't even believe that you're sovereign, so I try to control. It's either I don't believe that you're good, and so I think I have to secure my own good. I don't think that you are gracious enough and that you're going to provide, and so I think I have to control and I have to provide. And so we have to get back and say, no, it's sin against God. I'm not believing something about who God is. And here's the thing. If you don't acknowledge it's sin, that you're not going to ever be, be blown away by the grace of God. Because when you don't acknowledge your own sinfulness, your own brokenness, then you're not soothed or comforted by the grace of God. And therefore... It perpetuates itself because if you're not soothed and comforted by the grace of God, guess what you're going to do to others? You're going to, you're, you operate in your life on the principles that you, you use to motivate you. So if you're trying to operate by, I got to work harder, I got to fix myself, guess what you're going to tell other people in your relationships with them? The way that you're accepted is you got to work hard, you got to do better. If instead you operate and say, no, I'm a sinner in need of grace, and so I confess my sin and I receive God's grace, then guess how that's going to operate in your relationships? 
you're going to be an extender of grace. You're going to realize that people are just as broken and messed up as you are and that you received far more grace. And this is what Paul says. I mean, Paul, who's at the end of his life, who is a pretty holy dude. I mean, by any standards, you look at Paul's life and you're like, this dude has gone through way more sufferings than I would ever go through for Jesus. He's pretty holy. And he says, I'm the greatest of sinners. Why? It's because he's constantly before God and because he's not justifying his sin. Right? I mean, if Paul were to compare, I think that he has a lot of room to compare. If he was like, listen, like I've done way more for you, but instead he is constantly in relationship with Jesus, and Jesus is showing him his holiness. And in relation to his holiness, he sees his sin. He says, I want to be more holy. Forgive me for any of the impurities and my motives and my behaviors. Change me. And because of that, Paul is able to then extend grace more and more to others because he sees that no one can commit a greater sin than what we've committed against God. Do you believe that? Do you believe that, you, that you've committed a far greater sin against God than anyone could ever commit against you? Because if you don't believe that, if you don't believe that you're a bigger sinner against God than someone is, can sin against you, then there are going to be limits to your grace and you're going to judge them because you're going to think that them worse. You're going to look at them and say, well, they're not, I, I'm better than them and so you're going to condemn them. But if you realize that you stand in a place of totally unmerited grace, that you are the biggest sinner as far as in, that you've committed more sin against God and he's given you grace and you are going to have the power to not only not stand in judgment over others, but to give grace to others. And so this is so what it means for us to, to confess, that we, we, we have introspection, we have confession. Right? In Psalm 139, 23 through 24, it helps us. It says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way of everlasting. And just an encouragement, man, you might want to write down that scripture and just ask God that this week. Just invite that and pray over that scripture and just ask God that he would come and search you. He would come and seek and he would purify. And the last one is that we love, right? He says that once you take the log out of your own eye, then you will be able to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Because oftentimes we go on this extreme. We go either on religious or irreligious, right? We either go into like into judgment mode and we say, yo, everybody's got specs and I'm going to pull all of them out. Or we go and say, well, listen, nobody has specs. It's all okay. And we go into moral relativism where nobody has anything wrong and we never should speak about anything, right? And that's where our culture's at. Our culture says, listen, if you say that adultery is wrong, if you say that lying's wrong, if you say that certain sexual sins are wrong, then you're being judgmental right? You're being wrong. You're being judgmental and we don't like you for that. Listen, that's not what the Bible teaches at all. The Bible teaches there are things that are genuinely wrong, that are genuinely, that are evil, that harm others, right? And so we don't, we're not the ones staying judgment. We're simply proclaiming what God has already said, right? God has already made judgments. We don't, we just simply say, this is what God's word teaches. This is what it says. And Paul says, listen, what do I have to do with judging outsiders? It's not, it's those inside the church that I'm the judge, right? It's those inside that we are to, we are to help to grow in a Christ-like image. I don't go to the non-Christian world and start condemning them because they sin. They're the world. <laughs> like, what in the world? Of course they're sinning. Like, that's why they're in the world. But I go to my brothers and sisters that have claimed, I want to follow Christ, and we help each other to grow in holiness, but we are to we are to love we are to love others and we are to see and Jane would say there are specks in other people's eyes that we've been commissioned like Nathan to David we're we've been commissioned to help others Galatians 6 1 through 2 it says brothers if anyone is caught in any transgression you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ Paul imagines sin here as like a bear trap. That people are walking along and they step in these traps and they get caught. And instead of us walking along and say, well, it stinks for you. You got stuck in a bear trap. I'm doing great. Right? We come and we see people and we say, man, how can I help? I don't stand and, and say, what an idiot. You stepped in a bear trap. Right? I, I instead say, man, I could have easily stepped in that too. And so and I, and I, I help them to take that off. And that's what our community is to look like as a church, is that we are people that come along and we see others that are, that are hurting, right? And, and this is why we have to invite people in, because it's hard. I mean, you don't need somebody you don't know coming in and to speak that. You need people that you do know that love you, but we do this with one another. We help each other out from the traps that sin catches us in. 
First Peter 4, 8 says, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. As we love people, this covers up sin. It encourages, it brings life. So the Christian's job is to agree with God that every person you meet has, was worth Jesus dying for. We cannot ascribe that kind of value and dignity to a person and condemn them as worthless at the same time. It's just not possible. And so we, we've talked about um, what judgment is. We've talked about our need for confession, introspection, and, uh, and loving. And then last, uh, but finally, um, we're going to talk about uh, our need to judge our need to judge, judgment required. So this is a really interesting, it, it almost seems like a separate part. Verse 6, he says, Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. What in the world is Jesus talking about here? Right? I mean, like, we kind of understand verses 1 through 5, where he goes through and talks about, you know, judging others. We think, yeah, that's good. And then Jesus goes and says, talks about dogs and pigs and pearls and not giving them things. And you're kind of like, I don't understand this, Jesus. What are you saying? And I think that what Jesus is talking about here is he's talking about how we are to judge correctly. Right? I mean, Jesus in John seven twenty four, he says, don't judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. And so to unpack what this little parable is talking about, we need to think about, so who are, what are dogs and pigs? In first century, dogs and pigs were wild, right? I mean, you didn't have them as pets. There are people that have, I mean, we all have, a lot of people have dogs, but there are some that have pigs as pets. That's your own fancy, you know? But, uh, but they weren't pets in the first century. Um, but they were common animals. Uh, they, were, they were known across, you know? I mean, they weren't like these uh, uncommon animals. But what's going on here? What are they being fed, right? These dogs and these pigs, they're being fed something that they're not able to eat. And talks about they're being fed something that's sacred or holy or something that's a pearl. Now, the, the other time we see a pearl used in the gospel is in Matthew 13, verses 45 through 46, of the pearl of great price. And Jesus here is talking about the kingdom. He says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. So what does Jesus say is a pearl here? He says a pearl is the kingdom of God, is seen who Jesus is, and seeing what his kingdom is like. He's saying that's a pearl, right? That's what we want to share with people. Is We want to share with people who Christ is and what it is that he has done for us, right? That he is this person of unsurpassing worth. You've got to meet him. I mean, if you've ever fallen in love, right? I mean, you want people to meet that person you fall in love with. You're obsessed. You're, you're ensnared by them, right? You're, you, the person is amazing. And this is saying, man, didn't you realize that this is who Jesus is? He's better, Jesus is the person of, and this pearl of unsurpassing worth, this beauty and value. And what's happening is that these people are sharing this pearl of great price with dogs or with pigs. Now the question is, who are dogs and who are pigs? Because I think that there's two ways of reading this, and I think one is wrong. Is it one way of reading this that's the wrong way is saying, well, these people over there, they're really hostile to the gospel, and uh, they're... Uh, they're, they're dirty, they're people I don't like, and so they're, they're dogs and they're pigs. And so I don't need to go to them. I don't need to share anything with them, right? And I don't think that that's the right way of thinking about this. What I think Jesus is talking about here is I think he's sharing an insight about what our nature is like as humans. I think he's sharing that at, at a point in all of our lives, we were like dogs and pigs. And what do I mean by like, what do I mean by that? A dog and a pig, why are they frustrated at the pearl? They're frustrated because they can't eat it, right? I mean, like, they, a pig is wanting corn, you know? Like, a dog's wanting scraps of meat. They approach a pearl, and they're like, what good does this do me, right? I mean, like, great. I, they, they don't understand it. It's beyond them. It's above them. And so they approach the pearl, and it doesn't seem to suit them. And so at one point, all of us, we've approached Christianity, you know, we approach Jesus in this way. Jesus, how do you add to my life? How do you make me more comfortable? How do you make me more happy? How do you add things to my life and, and make me better? And so what we see is, is we try to incorporate and make Jesus fit into our paradigm, right? What Our paradigm is that, you know, the American dream, we want to be financially prosperous. We want to be, you know, comfortable. We want to uh, be liked. And so Jesus, how do you help me accomplish those goals? 
Do you accomplish me helping me become wealthy? Do you accomplish helping me to be comfortable, to be liked by other people? Do you, how do you facilitate these things in my life, Jesus? Because if you do, then I like you. Like, I'll add you. I'll, I'll, I'll eat you, you know? Like, you're, you're worth something. But if not, like, I don't know. Not sure. And what this is saying here is that all of us, at one time, we have used Jesus as a means to an end. Jesus, you're good because you can help me get something that's better. Whatever it is that I want. And he's saying this is what's happening, that all of us have this proclivity to do this is that they don't understand the worth of the beauty of who Christ is. But there's a time by the grace of God that he's changed us and where we see the gospel truth is that Jesus isn't something that we, or someone that we use to get something else, but he is who we get. That what you get by, by placing your faith in Jesus, returning from your sin and receiving his grace is relationship with God. And that is the pearl. That is the benefit. That is what our hearts have so longed for. It's that relationship. But it's, it's this very thing that the pigs and the dogs, they don't understand. They're not able to see. And why? Since they don't understand that, they get angry, right? You're giving me something that doesn't meet my needs. And you can see this, right? What happens with people when they think Christianity is just a means to an end and it doesn't meet that end? What, Jesus, you didn't make me comfortable. Jesus, you, I, I followed you and I became poor. That's not what I wanted, right? Do they not get angry? Do they not get frustrated because their God is not being worshipped or served and they, their God wasn't Jesus? Jesus was the means to serve their idol. And so they get angry. They get angry at God. They get angry at you. This wasn't what I signed up for, right? I mean, this is something that, that, where the Lord had checked my own heart when I turned 18. I saw suffering in my life for really the first time. I followed Jesus and I thought my life was going to be peachy. Hey, everything's good. And then all of a sudden, friends die. My mom's got cancer. You know, like things are being grim. And I look at Jesus and I'm like, hey, this is what I signed up for. I thought I signed up for, you know, like for a, a nicer, happier life. Why do I have suffering all of a sudden? And, and beginning to realize that Jesus is who I signed up for. That is what I get. And suffering and pain and hardship and trial that they bring me closer to him. Man, it's that change. That's what we get. And so how does this text inform us? How, do, how are we to react, right? Because he says, don't, don't throw pearls or put sacred things before people in this position. But if, if you're, Trevor, if you're telling me all of us were in this position, then how are we, how are we to know when we're to put the pearl, the, the kingdom of God, before other people? Well, I think that Jesus' instruction, when he talks to the 12, he sends them out, right? Jesus is doing ministry, and then he sends out the 12 to follow him and, and, and to go forth. And he tells them, he says, go into the city. And if, if there's a person of peace and they receive you, let your peace sit there. If there's a person that doesn't, he says, shake the dust off your feet and continue on. Right? And they're, they're itinerant ministries, right? They're moving on throughout the kingdom. So how does that involve us who maybe aren't itinerant? Right? You're like, hey, listen, I've got friends, I've got family, I've got coworkers that, uh, that they're just, they're hard to the gospel. You know? This is why we're doing bless. This is exactly why we're doing bless. Is that there are going to be people that the Lord has softened and their hearts are open and receptive for you to share your story, for you to disclose who Christ is, the pearl, what is holy and sacred and beautiful. But there are people that aren't ready for that yet. And so maybe you need to start with just praying for them. Maybe you move into, you know, asking, how is it that I listen? Because if you're not, if you're not, if you're not first praying and being sensitive, you're not going to hear from God. And if you're not listening to them, then you're not going to be attuned to where God's working in their life and when the moment is right. And so this is where we get into judge or judge not, right? Jesus is calling us to judge, but to judge in proper terms, to use discernment, godly wisdom, that we would look and see where is it that people are open and receptive? How are they going to be open and receptive? And we don't force feed people, right? We don't just stuff it down their throat. You're going to like some Jesus, and I'm going to give it to you. With some fries too, extra strong, right? You know what I mean? Like we don't we don't force people we don't force Jesus down people's throat because that's not becoming a Jesus. Right? I mean like that would be insulting if someone you know, like if when I went to marry M, if her father came to me and said, Listen, here are all the reasons why you ought to marry my daughter and he was trying to force her on me, I would think, Well that's that's really strange. Why are you trying to force your daughter? Like I love her. I don't need you to tell me reasons. And so often we think of Jesus like that. Is let me just force you some Jesus and you're gonna like him. Instead of being and building a relationship, loving people, sharing with them, and letting our life demonstrate, and as our life demonstrates, we are going to use words. 
We are going to share. We are going to speak about what we're in love with. But it's using godly discernment, wisdom. If there are people that are at a place where they're constantly rejecting the gospel, well, maybe you would be wise to try a different tactic. (laughs) Maybe it would be wise for you to listen and see what is it that they care about and how can you serve them. Maybe it would be wise for you to open up your home and for you just to be an example and let them see what it looks like to live a Christian life and to model that and serve them. And as you do that, the gospel and conversation is going to come. Do you see? This is why we bless, is that we've been blessed by God and we be a blessing and we use godly discernment in this process. So we're going to pray and close in a song, but... My challenge for you, one is, is there a log in your eye that's caught? Have you allowed other people to come in to be encouragers and helpers? And who is it that God would put you, has put you around right now that he wants to use you to bless? That, that we have a pearl of great price and he wants to use you. And how, where, where are those people at? I know I have people in my life that they're not at a place where they're ready for me to share my story. And that's my, I want to share my story. I'm like, listen, I want to I tell them. And the Lord's telling me, hold off calm down, chill out, bro. Like you need to take a chill and, and just love on them, serve them, be patient, invite them in, build a relationship. For some of you, it might be the other. You've, you've built relationships. You've got long-term relationships and God's saying, now's the time. You need to open your mouth and proclaim the gospel to them. Let them know. And so I just ask that as we worship, that you would just invite the Holy Spirit to move. That you would invite him to convict and to lead you to act. We don't want to just be hearers. We want to be doers of the word that God has told us. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you, Lord, that though we deserve judgment, you gave us grace. And so help us to be recipients of that grace, Lord. Um, thank you, God. Lord, I, thank you for the grace that you've given me, Lord, that I'm unworthy. I don't deserve it, God, but that you would, you would use me. You would constantly forgive me, Lord, and that you would empower me. And so I just pray that you would do that for us, God, that you would use us this week, even today, in our neighbors' lives, in our families' lives, our coworkers' lives, God. Give us discernment. Help us to be wise, Lord. We love you. It's in your prayer. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Faith Fellowship in St. Petersburg, Florida. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these or alter their content in any way without written permission from Faith Fellowship St. Pete. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at faithfellowshipstpete.org or write us at 6646 First Avenue South, St. Petersburg, Florida, 33707.